All right, so let's get right into our study this morning. We are beginning a new chapter in the Confession of Faith. We're moving on to chapter 13, dealing with the subject of sanctification. Chapter number 13 of the Confession of Faith, dealing with the subject of sanctification. So I want to read paragraph number one as we begin, and then we're going to be looking this morning at John 17. So if you want to have John 17 ready, and also the copy of the confession if you have one, and we'll read that first paragraph. This morning, as we've done with many of our introductions to a new chapter, this morning will be a bit of a total overview of paragraph number one. Uh, but there will be a primary emphasis today uh, on John 17. Um, so we'll be working our way uh, through uh, this particular paragraph over the next couple of weeks at least. So here's paragraph 1, chapter 13 of Sanctification. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces, to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord." Now, by way of a quick definition, when we think about sanctification, I want to read this kind of a summary of this paragraph. And this will take into account not just this paragraph, but the entirety of what sanctification is. After a person is justified by grace through faith, which is a one-time action by God, the process called sanctification begins. During this lifelong process, God incrementally changes us making us more holy. Through sanctification, we are becoming like what we have been declared to be when we were justified. All who are justified are being and will be sanctified. Sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit. Unlike justification that is solely the work of the Holy Spirit, sanctification requires our participation. Our participation, however, is only possible because of the work of God's Spirit in us. No one is perfectly sanctified or made completely holy in this life. The task is completed only when we are glorified, either when we die or at Christ's second coming, whichever occurs first. We believe that all Christians are called to holiness. As we begin this morning, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of Bible study this morning. And Lord, as we look to your word in John 17 in just a moment and consider the great truths of this chapter and this doctrine of sanctification, Father, I pray that you would help us and guide our thoughts and even guide our intentions this morning. Lord, our intentions ought to be pure. Our intentions will be to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in every word that we say, uh, every passage of scripture that we read. Lord, we are thankful for our justification, and we're thankful for our adoption, which we learned about over the last few weeks. And Father, now as we begin this new section on the doctrine of sanctification, uh, Lord, may it uh, be enriching to our souls. May it edify our, our, our physical beings, that we would just re realize the, the, the value and the importance of our sanctification. And Father, we are so grateful to be able to see in your word 
Uh, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, uses this, these terms and speaks of this doctrine. And Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we study. We know apart from the Holy Spirit, uh, we would not be able to arrive at uh, even a reasonable conclusion as to what your word teaches. Uh, may the power of spirit and the Holy Spirit that dwells in every believer today uh, give us discernment and wisdom. Father, may this day be a day that is for the glory of God, uh, that the name of Christ is lifted high, and that the Holy Spirit, as he bears witness to our souls, that we are indeed the children of God. Uh, may we truly rejoice in that fact this morning. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Sanctification, like many other of the doctrines, uh, is a deep well. Uh, it is uh, impossible to simply cover all of the elements of our sanctification in a single sitting. I would say even in a couple of sittings under the teaching of the Word. But sanctification is, you'll notice even in your confession, you'll notice there are a number of different verses that are uh, footnoted there that deal with a sanctification. Now, each one of those particular verses deals with different aspects of sanctification. Not all of those verses mention the word sanctification. Some of them mention the results of what sanctification does. And as we think about sanctification, this morning we really want to come to what we can determine to be a working definition of what sanctification truly is. Now before we turn to John 17, I want to just really give you three facts of our positional sanctification. Now you're going to hear the words uh, personal, progressive, uh, positional sanctification. Uh, this is a positional sanctificational, or sac sac sanctification fact. These are three things that sanctification is based upon. Number one, it's based upon union with Christ. Uh, there is no sanctification apart from a union with Christ. Number two, it is also based on effectual calling. We dealt with that chapter a number of months ago in the Confession. And thirdly, it is based upon regeneration. So those three facts are vitally important to the study of sanctification. Our union with Christ, sexual calling, and regeneration. Sanctification does not precede justification. Okay, that helps us when we study the Word of God and we read passages and we sometimes will make a false interpretation of something and mistake what is actually a work of God in justification uh, and mistaken it for sanctification. That'll help us as we understand this going forward. So this is that idea of this positional sanctification. Uh, number two, with regard to this positional sanctification, uh, sanctification consists in having a new heart and a new spirit created in the believer. Okay, so the sanctification requires that new heart that we studied about our regeneration and how we have to get a new heart. Ezekiel spoke about how God would give us a new heart. But what does it mean to have a new spirit? This is the, this is the, uh, the interesting of, among many things. Uh, it's a new spirit. Um, even an unbeliever um, has a spirit. Okay? Every human being has a spirit. Uh, it's not just believers, so it's not like we get something we didn't have before. We get a new spirit. What that means is, is that new spirit is based upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
So mankind, every human being, has a spirit. But we get a new spirit which consists of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. So that's what is in mind here when we talk about sanctification. Uh, the Holy Spirit, in effect, and we'll study this over the next few weeks, the Holy Spirit is, in effect, created in the believer. Uh, that Spirit now becomes. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit begins or has a starting point, but the Spirit in us is now being created in the believer. So think about it this way. The new Spirit is contrary to the old Spirit. So what our old Spirit, our, our Spirit we're born with, the new Spirit is contrary to it. Uh, they, they don't, uh, they don't um, move over into each other. One is the old nature, one is the new nature. And then what we're going to really focus on this morning is sanctification is always Christ-centered. Okay, it's always Christ-centered. So, sanctification is based upon union with Christ, effectual calling, regeneration. Number two, it consists of having a new heart and a new spirit. And number three, it is Christ-centered. So, Let's turn over to John 17 and let's look at this passage together to really see uh, sanctification not only at work, but in this great priestly prayer of the Lord. He is offering up a prayer not only for himself, but a prayer for his disciples and a prayer for believers. John 17, really, if you wanted to put a heading on all three on this passage, these 26 verses. Verses 1 through 5 is Jesus' prayer for himself. Okay, so when we read these first five verses, contextually and by means of interpretation, he's praying for himself exclusively. Okay, verses 6 down through verse 19, he's praying for his disciples. And then verses 20 through 26, he's praying for believers. Okay, so it's very important that when you interpret Scripture that we understand the who, the why, the how, and the when. Okay? The when of when Jesus is offering this prayer up, this is a solemn prayer, especially in the first five verses where Jesus is offering himself up by prayers unto his Father, where he is starting and that process of offering himself as a sacrifice to the Father, unto God. Okay? So when he prays this, he is including in this sacrifice his disciples and other believers. And you'll see how the wording of the scripture is pulling this uh, into, into existence, what we're going to see here. So uh, anytime the Lord prays, this is an important key. Jesus himself is praying as, it, as if it were the beginning. In other words, this is not something Jesus suddenly became overtaken with the thought, I now need to pray because the time of my crucifixion is at hand. This was a prayer that would have been offered even before the beginning of time because this is all part of the plan and the will and the purposes of God. Okay, does everybody understand that concept? So Jesus didn't wake up on the day that he offered this prayer to God and say, you know what, today's a good day to pray to the Father because I know that the time is, is, is now is short for my departure or for my crucifixion. This would have been his prayer had he prayed it the very beginning of time. Okay, because the plan and the purposes of God have never been thwarted and the plan and purposes of God were established before the foundation of the world. So Jesus does not reactionary pray. 
You know, when you and I pray, we pray in a reactionary manner. Something comes up in our life, we pray. We think about something we're facing, we pray. We've got to remember, Jesus is God. He's not thinking in those terms. He is an everlasting high priest. Okay, remember all the way back to the confession in chapter 8 when we talked about the mediator. Jesus is an everlasting high priest. So when he prays, he's making intercession for his people. Okay, very important foundation to what we, what we find here. So what does he first declare? Let's look at these first five verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. A couple very important notes. His initial prayer is to glorify thy son. Jesus' first request to the Father is to glorify himself. Now, humanly speaking... A human, unregenerate person says, well, that seems like an awful, selfish prayer. This person, again, I'm using the vernacular of what an unbeliever would say, this person is asking for God to glorify them. Isn't that self-centered and conceited? To the unbeliever, it seems so. But remember, when we think about our sanctification, in the first paragraph of the Confession, It talks about those who are united to Christ, effectually called to regenerate, having a new heart and a new spirit, creating them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Our virtue, or our being, is through the same virtue as Christ. Does everybody understand that? So when he's praying about the glorifying thy son, you'll see as this prayer progresses, that he begins to take that concept of the glorify thy son and he begins to pray for the disciples and he begins to pray for believers. Very important that we keep that. So the first thing he declares is he declares, first of all, why he came into the world. Why did Jesus come into the world? Oftentimes the mistake is made that people say Jesus came into the world to save sinners as his primary reason for the world. That's not the primary reason. The primary reason was for his own glorification. Now, every time a sinner is saved, Christ is glorified. Every single time. So the day of your conversion, Christ was glorified. Not you, Christ was glorified. That's an important distinction. But Jesus' request is, is that he came into the world for the very end that the Father might show in him who has been apprehended by the glory of God, and every time one of God's people is saved and regenerated and converted, it is applied to the merits of Christ. In other words, the only reason, the only glory that can be found in a sinner being saved is the glory of Jesus Christ. Okay, so when, when we hear about a sinner being saved, when we say glory to God, that's not just a Christian cliche. 
That's where all the glory goes. All the glory goes to Christ. Okay, no matter what age you came to Christ, no matter what age you were converted, Christ receives the glory for that. He applies to Himself. Jesus is saying, glorify thy Son. And He's desiring that of the Father. That He would bless the work which He had finished. What's so fascinating about this is Jesus is speaking in terms as if the cross has already happened. Okay? Again, notice what He's saying. He's talking about the hour is come. Verse 2, he says, And as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Now there's a direct connection that eternal life would be given to all that the Father had given to the Son. That number we cannot possibly know. You can't know how many the Father has given to the Son. That number, we can't count it. I can't, I can't look at any page of Scripture and say this many people will be regenerated. But I can say that every single one that the Father gave to the Son will in fact come to Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's only there, that interpretation. So he calls verse 3, or verse three, end of verse, yeah, verse 3, and this is life eternal that they might know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Jesus Himself is calling on God the Father Himself, and He's declaring that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, through me. Now again, to an unbeliever, this seems very self-centered. Jesus is asking to glorify Himself, and He's also saying the only way you're going to get the Father is through me. Now, any mere human being who stands up before a church and declares those things and says, listen, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to come through me, that's heresy. But if I say to anyone listening under the sound of my voice, if you want to get to the Father, you're only going to get there one way, and you're only getting there through Jesus Christ. You're not getting there through any other means. What happens with that? What is that doing? That's glorifying Christ. Again, you might say, what does this have to do with sanctification? It sets the very foundation of everything that sanctification is. And he speaks specifically of these things, and he's using specific terms. So the Godhead is involved, of course, in the regeneration of a man, and the Godhead is also involved when we think about our sanctification. Jesus now... Here's where we see he's almost declaring, or to us, as if the work's already been done. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What's the work? The work is to go to the cross, to die in the place of sinners, sin to be placed upon him, and yet his righteousness to be placed upon his own. But Jesus says, I've already finished the work. This goes back to the reality of time. Okay, again, bound by time, Jesus is not. God is not bound by time. He's not operating within the boundaries that we even comprehend in the truest sense. There is not, again, I do not mean to be irreverent, there is not a giant clock in heaven that has markers on it that says, here's the day and time in which these events are going to take place. It's as if they've already occurred. 
Why? Because he, is, he has no beginning, he has no end. If something doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end, it doesn't really have time. So he doesn't operate on a clock. God himself does not care that it's 1025 right now where we're seated. But we care. We use it as a gauge. It tells us how much more time is left in this lesson. It tells us how much more time do we have before the next service starts. How much more time do we have before something else we need to do happens? We've, we cannot think about God in those terms. We, we put a, so much of a human spin on our thinking about who God is. But then notice he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. What's the glory he's talking about? He's talking about the glory that he had when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where Jesus Christ is today, at the right hand of the Father. Doing what? Ever living to make intercession for the saints. Now, this brings us into the second section, his prayer for his disciples. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Now, there's a reason that the word men is used there, because that's a specific contextual reference to the disciples. Okay? In the truest sense, we can call one another as followers of Christ disciples, but we are not one of the twelve. Okay? That's why this chapter is broken up. If we start trying to intertwine all these things, we're going to confuse ourselves. So keep this in mind that he's specifically speaking of the disciples. And what does he say about them? He says, which thou gavest me out of the world, thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Jesus is talking very personal here about the things that he told the disciples. Okay? You and I did not sit with Christ and talk to him personally and audibly and learn from him in the same sense in which the disciples did. We're reading about it. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. This is really a remarkable statement. Jesus says, these disciples, I gave them the words that you gave me. They received them, and they've known them, and they know that they came from you. It's a pretty powerful truth. You're talking about someone who really knows who God is. I pray for them, and this staggers people, it buckles the knees. I pray not for the world. Now, in this sense, he's, he's not saying that this is not intended for everyone. Again, don't read too much into this, but notice what he says. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Specifically, I'm praying for those in which you, the Father, has given to me. So for, for the very first time here, first of all, he's praying for those disciples by whom he would have the rest to be gathered later together. He commends them unto the Father. He's, remember, Jesus is getting ready to go away. And he's now offering those disciples back up to the Father. And he's saying, listen, they have done what I asked them to do. I've finished my work. So now he's, he's giving them back to the giver. The Father gave them to the Son. So the Father... Okay, listen, this is, this is important. The Father, apart from Christ, 
would have to reject the entire world. Now, you need to chew on that for a while. Apart from Christ, God the Father himself would have to reject the entire world, including you, including me. God the Father could not accept you on any other basis than on the basis of Christ. He could not amend and say, they don't belong to Christ, I didn't give them to Christ, but I'm going to go ahead and accept them. Jesus is praying this because he has the right to pray it. And he has the right to offer up those that were in Christ. But because they embraced who Christ is, because they embraced the doctrine of salvation, they embraced the doctrine of who God is, Jesus now is giving them back into his, quote-unquote, custody. Secondly, he shows them that everlasting choice. He shows them that why were these disciples chosen? You realize, and again, I don't mean to be irreverent, there was not a sign-up sheet to be one of the twelve. Jesus specifically picked the twelve. He picked one of them knowing he was the one that would betray. The betrayer didn't get that implanted in his mind one day and say, I think I'll betray Jesus. We know that that was ordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus intentionally chose his betrayer. The betrayer could not have been anyone else but Judas. Peter could not have turned all of a sudden and become the betrayer that Old Testament prophecy talked about. It had to be Judas. But yet, here he's, he's saying that these men were chosen simply on the goodwill and pleasure of God. Folks, that's the very groundwork of our salvation. You're chosen not on your good work and not on because your purposes. You're chosen on the goodwill and pleasure and purposes of God, which is what makes our salvation even more amazing. Now again, why so much time with salvation? Because we need to understand fully salvation before sanctification even begins to make sense. And you can never go over it enough. So how, when did the purposes of God and his purposes and his good pleasure begin? From everlasting. That means those the Father would give unto the Son was known before those he would give were even born. Okay? Jesus, God did not say, okay, now in 19-whatever, those of us that are born in the 1900s, which sounds so ancient now, doesn't it? You're a 1900s people. He doesn't say, okay, the 1900s, this is the, this is the, the century that we're really going to get some good ones. We're really going to get some righteous people. No, from all beginning of time, man has been a sinner. And yet, before the foundation of the world, God chose those in which he would choose. Now, in order to choose... He does not base that upon anything that we can think. We've talked about and we've studied the, 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 the glory of what election really is. So we won't take the time today to do that. But you'll notice again, as he says, he's very, being very specific about the disciples and which disciples. And look what he says in verse 10. And all mine are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world. Now, wait a minute. Jesus says I'm not in the world, but he hasn't gone to the cross yet. And he hasn't ascended back to the Father. Why in the world is he saying, I'm not in the world anymore? We explains. But these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 
It's interesting, Jesus keeps using the phrase, as thou hast given me, as thou hast given me, as if the Father was the one who declared who would be given. And that's exactly the truth. Again, he's still technically with them. And look what he says in verse 12. Why I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. What a powerful truth. Now, none of them that is lost. We, all, we know that Judas was a betrayer, but the son of perdition. There he is. None of them are lost. None of them are lost, but the son of perdition. It's a reference to Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition, Judas, was a fulfillment of scripture. See it? It's a pretty powerful truth. Judas was not a random betrayer who just decided one day, I think I'll sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. Now, did Judas actually choose to take the 30 pieces of silver? Did he seek out and did he look for it? Yes. Did he do that apart from the sovereign will of God? No. Again, that's the mystery of God. Verse 13, and now, now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Of all the things Jesus could have asked for, he could have said, or maybe we think he would have said, you know what? This world's going to get really tough on the disciples. My prayer, Father, is that you would just go ahead and remove them. I'm going to be removed in a number of days. I'm just going to go ahead and bring them with me. It's not what he says. He says that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. We're getting to the part of sanctification, so hold on. Keep them from evil. Sanctification has much to do with holiness. It has to do with our union with Christ. It's, remember, it's based upon union with Christ, our effectual calling, our regeneration. It's based upon having a new heart. It's Christ-centered. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes... I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Sanctified through the truth. So here's what we understand. We understand, we've already talked about the positional sanctification facts. Now there's this progressive sanctification that begins to happen. Notice again that phrase in the confession, I think it's in the... It's, it's, it's the end of second, the second line where it says, and also farther sanctified, really, it's the third line, into the second and third line, really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The very same virtue. Okay, Christ-centered. Sanctification is Christ-centered. The same virtue. So what happens? 
this farther sanctification. Farther sanctification begins to move into this progressive that's not so much based on our position in Christ, but now the realities of what's happening in our life. Practically, what does sanctification do for us living? Okay? We're no longer talking about the things that justify you, the things that adopt you. We're now talking about the changes in your life because you are now being sanctified. Does everybody understand the concept of positional sanctification? It means that you have been set apart. You belong to Christ. That is positional sanctification. Progressive sanctification now is how we're now becoming more and more like Christ. Okay, so here he tells us again, and we'll go over this over the next few weeks. By his word and spirit dwelling in them, what happens? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean that we are never going to sin again? No. What he means is what sanctification does is that the lordship that sin has in your life is taken away. You are no longer a slave to sin. Okay? Sanctification is going to remove the lordship of sin in your life. You cannot be a a child of God and sin as the Lord of your life. That's what what the confession means, and that's what Jesus is praying for when he says, keep them from evil about the disciples. Because we know evil men did evil things to disciples. They would all later be martyred by wicked hands. So Jesus wasn't praying. Again, I'm not being irreverent. Please put a hedge of protection around the disciples. The most cliched prayer in human Christian history, a hedge of protection. That's not what he's praying for. He didn't pray for a hedge of protection. He said that you preserve them and you keep them from evil. Because we might come to the conclusion that God the Father didn't answer the prayer of the Son because they sure weren't kept from evil. He's talking about progressive sanctification in their personal persons. So that doesn't mean that sin is totally and utterly removed from you. That's why we still sin. We have a new nature, but we still have the old. It's the example, it's a crude example, but it's the best example I can think of. When you have two nations that are battling against each other in some type of a war, sometimes the eventual losing army or losing military wins a few battles along the way. And there's no doubt that we lose battles with our own sin along the way. Okay, it doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. So let's go on. He says, not only is the many of the whole body of sin destroyed, that's the lordship, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. Lusts are weakened. Okay, At the heart of all sin, I want you to hear this, at the heart of all sin is lust. There is no sin that doesn't manifest itself or have its beginning in a lust of something. So what is progressive sanctification talking about? Those lusts become weaker and weaker and weaker. There's going to be a forward movement and sin should be diminishing and grace should be increasing. I shouldn't be getting more sin. I shouldn't be sinning more 
as I'm being sanctified. There should be a, a real, and that's part of it it says, really and personal sanctification. Where I can definitively say, sin does not have the same lordship in my life that it had years ago. Just use a random example. If I've been truly converted and truly saved for 10 years, okay, 10's not the magic number. Sin and its lust should be decreasing, not increasing. Grace should be increasing. This is true progressive sanctification. And if this wasn't a part of the, if this wasn't part of God's plan, then what we simply would have happened is the day of our conversion, we should have just been taken out of here. If if all if all this was about was just saving you, then we should have just immediately been removed at our conversion. From a standpoint, and I love this illustration I read this week. I was reading this from the perspective of, of what pastors and elders and leaders in churches, how we should teach about sanctification. And, there's, and I agreed with this, and I, I thought this was important. As pastors and elders and teachers, we tend to focus more on all the times that we're failing. Okay, now listen carefully. We, we come to church, and we hear, pound, pound, pound. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're failing. You had a horrible week. Get to the front and hit your knees and repent and repent. And I'm not saying those things are important. But do you know what should be happening in a church and people that are being sanctified? We should be talking about the victories that we're getting too. Where now we're saying, you know what, pastor, or you know what, fellow Christian? God has really been working in my life. And that sin that I thought was going to have lordship over my life, my lust for it, my desire for it, it's decreasing. Now I'm going to tell you, it, I'm just telling you honestly as a pastor, it's easier to stand up before a group and tell people how wicked of sinners they are. Because we all know it to be true. But you know what's really hard? It's actually look at others and look at yourself and say, you know what? God's sanctifying process is actually working. It's just something I want you to think about. Again, it doesn't mean we're getting ready to stop preaching on sin. But what it does mean is what about the victories? Jesus goes on, and we'll read through this quickly. Verse 20, Neither pray I thee for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Christ here is the object of true faith, and now he's talking about even people beyond the disciples. The old sermon cliche I'm going to use, aren't you glad he didn't stop at just the disciples, the twelve? Because he moves on and he says, also for them which shall believe. Now at the time these words would have been penned, you and I, were not, we were not even in existence. Do you think Jesus knew that there would be those that would believe? Absolutely. Was he dependent upon the foreknowledge of knowing who would believe? Absolutely not. Here's what he knew. All the Father that's given to me will come unto me, and I will in no wise cast any of those out that the Father's given to me when they come. That's why we stand from this pulpit every single week, and we call out to every single person, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we leave the results to God. 
Because we're never called to say, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're not, you're worthy. Anyone who will repent and believe. But notice what he says, that they all may be one. Union with Christ. There it is. Father, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This, there is a union of all that, that, are in, that are in Christ. There is this true union. Folks, this is not a mythical picture. It is actually being united to Christ in everything. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, this is this perfect unity, I in them and thou in me. That's the definition of the union with Christ. I'm in them and they're in me. Just as the Father, you are in me. They are in me just like I am in you, Father, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So much you could unpack in that. But he prays specifically here. He offers to God the Father, just as he had done with the disciples, he now offers up unto the Father all that will believe. All that the Father has given from the beginning, the everlasting time before time even began as we understand it, all that would be in Christ, He now, through this high priestly prayer, is offering them up as well. This is where you and I now are included in this prayer. He communicates with His own. How does He do that? He does that through the Spirit. What happens in sanctification is little by little, we become more and more aware of who Christ is. We become more and more aware of His holiness. We become more and more aware of His love for us. This is not something that happens the minute you're converted. There are things that you did not understand about God the day of your conversion that you understand now. That's part of your sanctification. If you have a desire to live a holy life, it's not because you, you just suddenly got religion. It's because you have the Spirit. And the Spirit that's speaking expressly of Christ is calling you to sanctification. That's what a lot of the remainder of these, this chapter is going to be about. So we'll stop there for this morning. We'll pick up again next week. But I want you to think again about what Jesus said, especially there in verse 19, sanctified through the truth. There is no sanctification apart from Jesus Christ. There is no going to the Father apart from Jesus Christ. So next week, we'll talk a bit more about this particular paragraph, look at some of these, these other footnoted verses uh, in particular, and we'll, we'll look forward to that next week, okay?